All right, let's get this show on the road. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. Government is not us. This is the files. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dean O Files. This is episode number ninety eight. Recording on the 29th of April, coming at you live on Alternative Internet Radio, AIRAD.io slash live from Mega City 3, in the soon-to-be-reopened state of Texas. I am... I am uh, sad to report there's probably not going to be a show next week because uh, finals. Finals, finals, finals are happening. Uh, so I'm not gonna be on, uh, I'm not gonna be on any files, and I'm not going to be doing this show next week because of tests and studying that must be done. I will have zero free time. This is the last show I'm gonna be able to do, which is why I want to do a big kind of, uh, news rundown for this show. Uh, about... What Justin Robert Young describes as the only story that matters. I don't think it's the only story that matters. I think it's the only story that exists. That is coronavirus. But first, there's a few other things to get through. The first story that I want to talk about comes to us from the fire, thefire.org. This uh, interests me because it has to do with my alma mater. This is a story that comes to us from the University of North Texas. This is written by Samantha Harris and published uh, on the 27th of April. Fired for his views, UNT math professor brings free speech lawsuit. In, a total, in a total defiance of the First Amendment, the University of North Texas has fired a math professor for criticizing the concept of microaggressions and for refusing to attend extra diversity training to correct his views, which the math department chair deemed, quote, not compatible with the values of this department. Now, Professor Nathaniel Hears is suing UNT for violating his free speech and due process rights. Hears is represented by, his, by attorneys from the Alliance Defending Freedom. The right to express one's views, particularly in matters of politics, is at the absolute core of the First Amendment, protecting, uh, First Amendment's protection of the right to free speech. As the Supreme Court wrote in Texas v. Johnson, and uh, that's a 1989 case, the case in which it upheld flag burning as a protected form of protest, quote, if there's a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself to be offensive or disagreeable. Yet that is exactly what UNT has done to Hears. The trouble started in November 2019 when someone anonymously left a stack of flyers in the faculty lounge explaining the concept of microaggressions, which the flyers described as, quote, verbal and nonverbal behaviors that, quote, communicate negative, hostile, and derogatory messages to people rooted in their uh, marginalized group membership 
According to his complaint, Hears believes that the concept of microaggressions, quote, hurt, quote, hurts diversity and tolerance because it, quote, teaches people to see the worst in other people, promotes a culture of victimhood, and suppresses alternative viewpoints instead of encouraging growth and dialogue. Indeed, microaggression theory has been, long been the subject of much public debate, including, as the complaint notes, in Fire President Greg Lukanoff and NYU social psychologist John Haidt's recent book, The Coddling of the American Mind. So in response to the flyers he disagreed with, Hears wrote a note on a chalkboard in a facility lounge that read, please don't leave garbage lying around with an arrow pointing to a stack of flyers. <laughs> According to Hears' complaint, professors regularly leave comments and jokes on the faculty lounge chalkboard, often anonymously, but this time... Ralph Schmidt, chair of the math department, sent an email to the entire department with a photo of the comment stating, quote, with the person who did this, please stop being a coward and see me in the chair's office immediately. Thank you. According to Hears, when he went to meet with Schmidt in November, uh, 20, on November 26th, Schmidt pressured him to apologize for the flyers and asked if he would like to attend additional diversity training beyond UNT's required diversity training, which Hears is already scheduled to attend. Hears declined, and apologize, uh, declined to apologize or to attend additional training on December 1. Hears was notified that UNT had terminated his employment. While this already would have been constitutionally suspect, given the ongoing controversy over Hears' expression, Schmidt made crystal clear in the email that Hears had, in fact, been fired for his views. Quote, My decision not to continue your employment in the spring semester was based on your actions in the grad lounge on 11-26 and your subsequent response, Schmidt wrote. Schmidt also implied that if Hears had agreed to apologize for his views and attend diversity training to reform them, things might have turned out differently. Get to the fucking re-education camp. Um, quote, everyone makes mistakes, Schmidt wrote, and I'm all for forgiveness if actions are followed by honest regret, but you very much defended your actions and stated clearly that you were not in, uh, interested in any kind of diversity training. So instead, Hears was terminated because his actions were, quote, not compatible with the views of this department. Hears' complaint alleges not only First Amendment violations, but also due process violations because the decision to terminate him was made without offering him a hearing or any other meaningful opportunity to defend himself. This is an important case. If faculty are free to distribute literature promoting microaggression theory, but are not free to criticize it, then the university, uh, th through explicit viewpoint discrimination, is imposing what the Supreme Court has called, quote, a, call, a pall of orthodoxy over the university, which is supposed to be the, quote, uh, uh, the ultimate, quote, marketplace of ideas. Fire will keep updated on this case as it progresses. This is one that I want to track because, again, it has to do with my alma mater. I graduated from this university. University of North Texas, and it is a bastion of social justice thought. Um, it is, it's, a lot of universities are, UNT really is. It is, uh, it's, it is a culture of, of silencing those who disagree. That is, that is the culture that exists at that school. So I, um, I, I'm not surprised that this would happen. I believe this is the second such story we've had about UNT. I might have covered it, uh, early on in, in, uh, the current iteration of Dino Files as it, as it exists today. Um, so it probably would have been around episode like 50 or so. But this is, uh, this is another one of these instances, and I want to follow this because, again, I'm, I'm, I'm tied to this story. Uh, boy, howdy, I wish I, I wish I were already a lawyer so I could sue the shit out of my alma mater. That would feel so great. Um, let's move on. Uh, we have a story out of Paris. Now we're getting into the, the uh, only story that exists. Uh, but I'm trying to pull uh, news about this that, that you may not have heard or that, that we've been talking about for a while, the kind of undercurrent of what's going on here. This is interesting. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, violent protests in Paris suburbs reflect tensions under lockdown. The riots began after a man on a motorcycle crashed into the open door of an unmarked police vehicle, a collision that landed him in the emergency room with a broken leg. 
In the midst of a global health crisis, the April 18th incident in the Paris suburb of, not even going to try that, might have gained a little attention, but even while there was some debate between witnesses and police about whether the door had been opened on purpose, uh, but coming five weeks into a lockdown that, was that has exacerbated inequalities, the incident brought simmering tensions to a boiling point in France's poor and densely populated suburbs. Video footage from the place I'm not going to try to say this past weekend showed protesters aiming fireworks at police who responded with tear gas. The violent demonstration spread to other Parisian suburbs, including, I'm not even going to try that, where the elementary school was set on fire Thursday. Additional clashes with police involving projectiles thrown at officers or the torching of trash cans and cars were reported as far away as not even going to try that in southern France and Lyon, uh, Lyon and Strasbourg in the east. These protests have been small, nothing on the scale of the Yellow Vest demonstrations that rocked France for months in 2018 and 19, but the violence stands out within Europe, where streets have largely been deserted and people have been largely accepting of the coronavirus-related restrictions imposed by their governments. The riots in France have been the first and foremost uh, about... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. The riots in France have been first and foremost about heavy-handed policing, a pre-existing controversy, but they're also about the strains of the outbreak and lockdown on working-class families, many of immigrant uh, origins who live in small apartments within crowded public housing uh, buildings. France's restrictions on movement in place since March 17 allow people to leave the home at, uh, once a day for either exercise or essential shopping, but advocates say police have been monitoring for infractions in the suburbs more frequently than on the streets of central Paris. Some of those who live in communities such as not even going to try that are essential workers, bus drivers, postal workers, grocery cashiers, who have had no choice but to continue working, put themselves at risk through the lockdown. Others have been confined to their apartments, with children home full-time and with little ability to create any social distance from their neighbors. These communities have been devastated by the coronavirus in ways wealthier Paris has not. Directly north of, north of Paris, not even going to try that, colloquially known as the 93 after its administrative number, is the poorest apartment in the country and serves as something of a national metaphor for all of France's suburbs. The total number of deaths recorded in, in the 93 between March and April 2020 is 128% higher than it was the same period in 2019, according to data released by INSEE, France's National Statistics Agency. In the second highest figure in France, only behind, not even going to try that, where France recorded the first major coronavirus cluster. As a point of comparison, Paris saw total mortality increase about 68% during the same period this year, nearly half the amount of not even going to try that. Although all, of these, all those deaths were not necessarily related to COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus, experts are now turning to these figures for a fuller, if still imprecise, sense of the pandemic scope. The umbrella totals, the reasoning goes, also includes the deaths of those who were never tested for the coronavirus or who died at home without seeking medical care. I'm going to stop there because it, it goes in to continue to play up the deadliness of this thing. Uh, but unrest in Paris. This is something that I love, carry, uh, love covering Parisian riots because uh, the French know what the fuck they're doing when it comes to rioting, and I applaud them every time they do it, even if it's for the wrong reasons. They're just really fucking good at it, and we can learn something. Um, this was published on the 27th of April. Let's move on. This is from The Guardian. This was uh, shared with us in the Discord. It comes from... Let me go to the general channel. It comes from Bullshito, so thank you very much for sharing this. This is, uh, I said it was, already, I already said it was in the garden. Uh, London is so strange and sad. The sacked hospitality workers sleeping rough. Homelessness charity says it has never witnessed a more distressing situation than during coronavirus crisis. Trafalgar Square at night is silent and almost empty. The usual crowds of noisy tourists visiting London replaced by clusters of homeless people who built, uh, I'm sorry, who wait on the steps of the National Gallery for food to be distributed. 
But these are not all long-term rough sleepers. Central London is seeing a surge of newly unemployed restaurant and pub workers forced to sleep on the streets because they can no longer afford to pay rent. Rough sleepers like Martin, a recently sacked chef from Poland, are finding life under lockdown increasingly difficult and dangerous. Quote, one that has become so strange and sad. The only people who are not, uh, who aren't out look like they're looking for drugs. There's a lot of crazy people with knives, he said. The government says it has housed 90% of those who were sleeping rough nationally by paying for hotel rooms in the unprecedented drive over the last month to stop the spread of COVID-19, with 5,400 uh, housed, including uh, 1,810 hotels across London. But in the capital, hundreds of tents and cardboard box encampments remain, and conditions are getting much harsher for those still or newly on the streets. The city's day centers have been closed to prevent the transmission of the virus, leaving the homeless with no place to shower or wash their clothes, no toilets, and nowhere to access regular food supplies. The disappearance of commuters means that no one's offering money to the destitute at a time when most soup kitchens and food banks are not operating, and when the closure of cafes has meant the homeless no longer receive unsold sandwiches at the end of the day. It's been left to a few small groups of volunteers to provide thousands of meals a week. Although a minority of those who remain sleeping rough are there by choice and have rejected officer, uh, offers of hotel rooms, most of the newly homeless are still hoping for help and feeling very vulnerable in the deserted back streets of central London at night. Martin, 27, worked his way up through London's kitchen, starting as a porter when he arrived in the UK eight years ago, to his most recent job as a chef uh, uh, something at a fashionable restaurant in East London. He was abruptly sacked shortly before the lockdown began and had to leave the, uh, the room he was renting because he had no savings. He's been sleeping on a, a bit of pavement near Charing Cross Station for six weeks. He said he's been so, uh, told five or six times by outreach workers that someone will call him to organize a room in a hotel. Quote, I'm ready for a call. I'm still waiting. Maybe the hotels are full, he said. In the last couple of days, his phone battery uh, has, in any case, gone dead. And with cafes closed, there's nowhere to charge it. He finds sleeping on the street unsafe and alarming. They then go into another story about uh, one of the people who is currently sleeping on the street. If, if this is definitely happening here, like the, the we're not seeing uh, many stories about this in the United States, but it is definitely happening in the United States. I've personally seen it more here in Mega City 3. Um, and if I were to go downtown, I'm sure it would be even worse than what I've seen in Midtown. Um, and if I were to go to East... Uh, north and east of downtown, where the actual tent cities are, I would see it there as well. There's also more people sleeping under the overpasses at, uh, than I've seen before. Uh, and that's a very common thing. And it's even more common now. So this is, this is not a... Uh, this is not isolated to, uh, to London. It's just an interesting sort of portrait of what's happening, I think, with homelessness probably everywhere fascinating story here uh it continues it's a it's a pretty long feature but i'm i'm going to uh drop it in the show notes i, I wanted to read that to give you an idea of kind of what's going on and thank you bullshitter for sharing that with us let's go to some stories about what is happening oh this i should have moved you know what i did this in the wrong order i should have moved this story up right after the fire story but let's let's take a quick side jag here uh published on the 29th of April today, uh, written by Robbie Sov. Two reason, Alaskan school district gets rid of the Great Gatsby and four other controversial books. This really needed to go up by that fire story, but I still want to read it. Uh, I'll move it over there just so it's in the right order in the show notes. In what has to be one of the most bafflingly uneducated decisions a school district has ever made, officials representing Alaska's, uh, not even going to try that, Matsu, Borough School District, uh, voted 5-2 to remove five controversial books from the English literature curriculum. This 
would be a thorny issue, even if the reading list was indeed controversial, but it is not. The books in question are Invisible Man, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, Catch-22, The Things They Carried, and The Great Gatsby. If these books are controversial, the word has no meaning. Gert Gatsby, in fact, is often considered to be the quintessential work of 20th century American literature. It's perhaps the most widely read novel for U.S. high school students. Try telling this to the nurse ratch, uh, ratchets over at the math school board. This is a reference to From One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I can't imagine any of them have read, or else they would want to, or else they would, I'm sorry, or else they would want to ban it as well. One member of the board, Jeff Taylor, was quoted by the local news as making the following statement at last week's board meeting. Quote, is there a reason that we include books that we've labeled as controversial in our curriculum? I would prefer they were gone. It's true that these books do contain some reference to sex and violence, some graphic language, and some discussions of mature subjects, but they do that because they are educational. Young people should consume age-appropriate literature that actually teaches them something about the ugly, messy, complicated world. Would the school board prefer to have high schoolers reading Dr. Seuss? The most revealing comment came from board member Jim Hart, who said, quote, if I were to read this in a professional environment in my office, I would be dragged to the Equal Opportunity Office. One almost feels some pity for the man who uttered this absurd statement. He is so beaten down by a culture of obedience to workplace political correctness that he thinks it is his job to similarly sanitize the small corner of the world over which he exerts some small authority. Uh, HFTM says, The Things They Carried by O'Brien was the book that got some of my male students reading. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's massive for that reason. Um, that's a book that affects a lot of people. It's a fascinating book. It's not my personal favorite, but there are a lot of, of people who respond to that. Um, HFTM says, as a professor, banning books is utter bullshit. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, actually, the National Coalition Against Censorship, I, I haven't seen if they've discussed this. I should double check, actually. And I'll just do it live real quick, just a moment. Yes, the National Coalition Against Censorship has a post about this. Uh, I believe it might be their pinned tweet. No, it's not. It's just the most recent one. Uh, the, the National Coalition Against Censorship, that's NCA Censorship on Twitter, tweets, It's 2020 in Alaska's Matsu Borough School District. Uh, MS, uh, they tagged the school district, has banned these five books from their schools. Great Gatsby. I know what the cage bird sings. Catch-22, the things they carried. Invisible Man. Why they're too controversial. Learn more. Catch-22 is a book that's great for, for, for kids of that age as well. I'm not sure why they would ban... Uh, Ace, didn't they pull this bullshit against Huckleberry Finn a couple of years ago? This is so absurd. It is absurd. Um, the, the, uh, the Catch-22 is a book that, that, that is a, uh, a book that's really good for high schoolers. I wonder if they allow Catcher in the Rye either. Catcher in the Rye is another book like that. Um, but I'm, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm so... Uh, the, let's skip down to the bottom of the story. The only good thing about this story is that the board's decision has been met with universal scorn. According to KTUU, uh, quote, River Kelly, a high school student at Matsu Career and Tech, told KTUU that what he was hearing from his friends, quote, almost everybody I've talked to has been shocked demanding these bands be taken back, the sophomore said. Former Colony High School English teacher Pete Hoppel was given more, uh, was even more succinct, saying, I'm stunned, absolutely stunned. I'm pretty familiar with all these books, said Mike Oxen, the uh, principal at Matsu Career and Tech, who used to teach English. If you ask me to articulate for you which controversial in the, Gats in, in the Great Gatsby, I could not do that. Channel 2 searched for favorable reactions to the board's decision, uh, but was unable to find any prior to publication of this story. Um, yeah, this is going to have to be rolled back, especially if NCAC and, and, and uh, organizations like that start writing their jock, as they should. There, there, should, there needs to be letters written. This is a, this is a massive problem. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so... Uh, 
In other censorship news, let's move on with our uh, only story that exists stories. This was published on the 24th of April. People stuck at home are making and watching porn. Everybody panic. Uh, written by Elizabeth Nolan Brown. Anti-porn crusaders get their panties in a twist about the uptick of porn consumption during 2019. There's some evidence that Americans are buying more junk food, drinking more alcohol, playing more video games, consuming more marijuana, and watching more porn while stuck at home during the COVID-19 shutdown. I think, I think she's referring there to the only things that make this thing bearable. Um... The possibility that more people are possibly watching more porn has modern culture warriors doubling down on their calls for censoring adult entertainment. Not only is the banned porn brigade up to its usual business, but activists have started incorporating the new coronavirus into their anti-sex work campaigns. The latest panic kicked off in March when the website Pornhub announced it would be offering free premium subscriptions to people in Italy, Spain, and France. A spokeswoman for the group formerly known as Morality and Media, now rebranded as the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, uh, NCOSE, called it a demonic deal. A subsequent Pornhub traffic spike further upsets moralists. Family Research Council Vice President for Policy and Public Affairs Travis Weber complained that, quote, these pornography sites try to lure people and trap them into viewing stuff while they're sitting around. <laughs> they don't have to try very fucking hard. Sioux City Journal columnist Linda Holm warned in early April, quote, as the country focuses on, on uh, COVID-19, there's another public health crisis that constitutes, uh, that continues, I'm sorry, under the radar, and is just as infectious and damaging to individuals, families, and our children. <laughs> get us, uh, get back to us when porn kills 50,000 Americans in two months. The Pornhub bubble was premature. Big spikes in traffic tumbled once Pornhub's free subscription promotion ended. It fell further as stay-at-home and shutdown orders wore on, suggesting the surge presented an influx of temporary new customers. Pornhub's skyrocketing March traffic uh, became, by mid-April, a much more modest bump. Alas, ours an era is an era of easily triggered scolds and illiberal nannies who see damning decadence in anything they don't personally like or understand. Uh, uh, not to mention anti-porn awareness groups like NCOSA on the right and Exodus Cry on the left still have to earn their keep. So Pornhub's marketing stunt and traffic spike provided a convenient news hook, but anti-porn advocates are quite capable of whipping themselves into a fervor without help. One might think the fact that porn studio production in the U.S. and Canada has been suspended until further notice would be some comfort, but thanks to social media, uh, cash apps, cam sites, clip stores, and fan club platforms experience porn performers, sex workers, from other sectors who are now out of work and cash-strapped or stuck-at-home newcomers who've been producing and monetizing their own content online. And this has anti-nudity nuts up in arms. One platform, OnlyFans. Every, every freaking, every woman between the age of, like, 20 and 30 has an OnlyFans now. Um, I say that, that's a massive, that's, that's massively, uh, uh, dramatic, but it seems that way sometimes. Um, OnlyFans has been, get, has recently been getting more mainstream attention, and with that, a hefty dose of criticism, quote, Every now and then, the modern world produces a trend so ghastly you can't help but sit back and think, would a global Islamic caliphate really be that bad? Oh god, get fucked. One such fad is the sudden growth of OnlyFans, a monthly paid subscription content service, Charlie Peters wrote uh, this week in The American Conservative. Platforms like OnlyFans, which give sex workers more control over their own boundaries, clientele, and earnings than the porn world is traditionally offered, appear to be especially triggering to conservative anti-porn advocates who have long insisted their biggest concern was stopping sexual exploitation, not controlling what women can do with their bodies. This misplaced ire is especially pernicious right now, with so many sex workers put out of work by the new coronavirus. Financial desperation can force sex workers and other vulnerable groups into riskier arrangements and make it more likely that they'll be victimized. Platforms like OnlyFans, meanwhile, can actually help protect, quote, the young female population Peter's worries about by allowing consenting adults to engage in remote sex work from their homes and on their own terms. It's not just conservatives twisting anti-exploitation logic to fit a pet agenda. 
Anti-porn advocates on the left have also been using COVID-19 to scare up sympathy. In Australia, some are trying to blame porn for purported spikes in domestic violence, something they conclude is happening based on there being more online searches for the phrase recently. Um, okay, the spike in domestic violence, they're blaming porn for that? Not the fact that all the fucking bars are closed? Like, if these, the, 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 the men who are or would meet or would be domestic abusers, and frankly women too, for that matter, are not allowed to leave to get out of the situation that would, uh, that would, um, elevate their ire to that point. So the, the, there's a very simple explanation for the spike in domestic violence. And that's the fact that these people who secretly hate each other cannot get away from each other. It's not that difficult. Um, God. And the people who, and that's not, I'm not it's just in any direction for any reason. These people who do not get along, or who secretly don't get along, or again, secretly hate each other, they can't remove themselves from the situation that they're in. They're, that's going to cause problems. I, 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 don't, I don't see why this is such, a, such a, uh, a mystery to people, or why they would try to blame it on porn. It's not fucking porn. <sighs> uh, actual shelters and services for victims of domestic violence have been reporting an increased demand for their services during the COVID-19 outbreak, but they attribute this demand to abusers being forced to stay home and the stress of unemployment triggering abusive behavior, not otherwise non-toxic partners being radicalized by the extra 15 minutes on Pornhub. Both the liberal and conservative iterations of the new porn freakout focus on pornography instead of addressing actual threats to vulnerable groups, vulnerable groups such as sex workers and those in abusive relationships, which are more related to material resources than symbolic patriarchy or sex traffickers. Focusing on porn, in other words, lets anti-porn crusaders cosplay the ethical position while, being, while ignoring the actual contours of people suffering or endeavoring to do anything about it. They're LARPers. They're people who LARP at giving a shit. Um, let's move on to... Uh, this is going to be the first story in a run of related stories. This comes to us from uh, another user on the Discord. This comes to us from SawU77. A story from Law and Crime, uh, published on the 23rd of April. Anti-vaxxer arrested for trespassing on Idaho playground that was closed during the pandemic. An Idaho woman whose life mission as of late has been to fight against mandatory vaccination requirements uh, has been arrested for trespassing in a city park, which was partially closed by the government because of the coronavirus. Her arrest resulted in a counter-protest outside the home of the officer who arrested her, led by uh, Ammon Bundy, the man who led an armed occupation of the Oregon Wildlife Refuge in 2016 and who famously escaped punishment for doing so. Sarah Brady, 40, of Meridian, Idaho, refused to leave, quote, that's in quotes, the playground area of a city park, according to the Meridian Police Department. The police say, quote, several calls to the Ada County 911 Center alerted them to a group which had gathered at the playground on Tuesday afternoon. Okay, so the Karens. The Karens called the cops. Uh, video that appears to show the police making the arrest has been circulated widely online. Parents in the video questioned how the city could, could close a public park, which they forcefully argued they had paid taxes to support. One of the officers in the scene responded that city code allowed the city to close the park. Parents also asked if they would get a refund on their tax bills because the park was closed and argued that the city's move to close its park was unconstitutional. It's not. Um, one of the officers said the parents could take up their political and legal gripes with the mayor and said uh, he was merely uh, there as a law enforcement officer. <laughs> I'm just doing, I'm just, I'm just following orders. Uh, quote, ma'am, don't get mad at me. One of the officers said at one point during the conversation, both the parents and officers say they've been frustrated over coronavirus related closures. Uh, yeah, they're just following orders, man. They're just following orders. What is this? Uh, I'm, 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 I'm having flashbacks to Nuremberg. 
A man said to be with the city parks department is heard in the video saying the playground was closed because, quote, the virus stays on plastic for 72 hours and therefore could remain on playground equipment. The parks employee said the city was, quote, just trying to protect people. Brady, who was later arrested, retorted that the virus could remain on items in a local Costco store, which remains open. One parent is heard in the recording sarcastically replying that the city was trying to protect people from getting vitamin D in the sunshine. We have rights and we're tired of this, one of the parents said. It was difficult at times to ascertain precisely who was speaking during more than a six-minute-long recording. The sound of wind at times interfered with clarity of the recording. The conversation frequently turned to the question of whether the parents would be cited or arrested and which government employee would undertake such an action. When a city employee appeared to mention social distancing, the parents indignantly asked, maybe you should stay away from us. Do you have the virus? Officers finally had enough. After several further commands that the parents exit the playground now, the parents asked if the police would cite everyone in another area of the park for failing to social distance. When an officer started uh, counting down a child disciplined five-second warning for Brady to leave, Brady said, Arrest me for being on the park. Do it. As Brady put her hands behind her back, turned her back to the officer, she told whomever was recording the video to keep recording. Another parent, presumably the one making the recording, said, Officer, you don't have to do that, as one officer obliged by arresting Brady. Brady wanted to know uh, if she was being arrested or detained, demanded that someone call... Well, yeah, you're in handcuffs. You're being arrested. Uh, and demanded that someone call the Idaho Freedom Foundation, a group which states that its goal is to, quote, free people from government dependency. Other parents started yelling that Brady's kids were present, questioned who would attend uh, to the kids, and complained that Brady was being arrested for being in a public park. Uh, there is a review of the city code there uh, that, that sort of talks about the authority that the municipality actually has with regard to the code, and or, I'm sorry, with regard to the parks. And it's, it's, I mean, yes, they obviously, yes, they have the, they can close them down. Um, yeah, the, the this is, um, this is insane. Um, I don't like the, 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 in, the inclusion of the term anti-vaxxer seems irrelevant to the actual story itself, which I find to be interesting. Um, because the, the, like, this is obviously, it, it seems to me like they're obviously trying to slant this in the headline, but can't actually slant the story itself because yeah sure the code says they're allowed to close the parks yeah arresting a woman in front of her children for going to the park is insane and you can't sanitize that away from the story itself so i find that fascinating thank you saw you 77 for sharing that it is related to other stories we have a story again on reason published on the 28th a kentucky family of seven didn't practice social distancing now child services is investigating the parents for abuse a homeschool legal defense group calls it a terrible thing and a waste of time. What's a parent to do? It was early in March. COVID-19 fears were on the rise, and two Kentucky parents who were new to the state needed to open up a bank account. Seeing no other option, they took their seven kids to the bank with them. By the time they'd returned home from their errand, a child protective services caseworker and law enforcement officer were waiting at the door to investigate them for child abuse. What, that's according to Jim Mason of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, who blames the false report on panic over COVID-19 social distancing rules. A letter from Child Services obtained by Reason confirmed the existence of the complaint. The parents, referred to as, quote, Bill and Christy, are homeschoolers. Christy has moved to Kentucky in advance of Bill, who had remained in New York City finishing up work. When they arrived at the bank, the parents opted to let the two oldest children wait in the car, while other five had to accompany them into the building, which had a COVID-19 warning sign on the door. They are not treated warmly, writes Mason. The teller immediately interrogated Bill and Christy about why they brought five kids into the bank at one time. She, the teller, told them they could not get within six feet of her and they needed to take the children out. Christy explained the children were too young to be left unsupervised by, uh, by an adult and neither she nor Bill could take them elsewhere because the couple were opening a joint account and both had to be present. 
While Bill stayed with the children away from the counter, Christy opened the account, feeling self-conscious as the staff whispered to each other and watched her family suspiciously. When Bill walked to the counter to show his New York ID and to sign, the bank staff asked why Bill and Christy's identifications were from different states, which the couple explained. Back at home, the authorities confronted Bill and Christy, who discovered that someone had called in an anonymous tip claiming that the mother of five had taken her children out with a man who wasn't their dad, and they had bruises on their arms that indicated rough ground. Jesus, fuck, the Karens! Oh my god! Fucking, oh my god, we need gulags for Karens. I'm done with this. We need gulags for Karens. The Karens are done. The Karens are out of line. They're done. I'm sick of this. The investigator proceeded to question the kids away from the parents, and he made at least one of the boys take off his shirt to look for bruises. Christy told Mason that the investigator wanted to do the same with the girls, but she objected, so he only pulled up the girls' sleeves and took photos. Already there's a problem. If the kids were wearing long sleeves, it was a cold day. How had anyone spotted bruises? Of course, the caller got the, information, got the other information wrong, too. Bill was very much the kid's father. The parents presumed the call came from someone inside the bank, since it specified five kids rather than seven. Whoever the caller was, they provided the exact kind of information, bruising, suspicious persons, etc., that prompts a CPS investigation. When Bill handed over his license, the investigator could see from the last name he was not an unrelated male. And when the kids showed in their arms, he could see the bruises didn't exist. Case closed, if only. When I spoke with Mason by phone, he explained the idea of an off-ramp. In theory, he said, once an investigator gets to a home, checks for the supposed crime, and comes up at the hand, that he or she should turn around and leave, i.e. take the off-ramp. Anything else, uh, quote, is such a terrible thing and a waste of time. But all too often, investigators insist they must robotically keep probing, opening cabinets, looking in the fridge, questioning kids. This Kentucky investigator even questioned the family about which homeschool curriculum they were using, as if that had some bearing on the case. That's why the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, as well as its allies who make up United Family Advocates, have been trying to get off-ramp legislation passed. Once an investigation comes up empty-handed, the investigators should simply leave, rather than get started checking off a giant list of possible problems. The groups are also hoping that someday states will outlaw anonymous reporting. That way, it would be harder for people to weaponize the system against families that got on their nerves. Currently, it's just far too easy to bring a case into existence. What's more, parents in Kentucky and the rest of the country also deserve a law like Utah's free-range parenting bill, which says that simply taking your eyes off your kids is not neglect. Neglect is blatant disregard for their safety, especially in these times. Parents who want their kids to wait in the car or even at home rather than dragging them into stores should be able to make that sensible decision without fearing an investigation or worse. The HSLDA's lawyers are working with the family, but the state gets 45 days to close an investigation, and Mason said it can easily get an extension, turning a time already tense of pandemic fears into a protracted period of torment. Uh, so yeah, I'm trying to find uh, whoever, was the, um, whoever was the anonymous person who made this call. Get to Gulag. I'm, I'm, I'm sick of the fucking Karens. I'm sick of you, and if there is any group which I am okay with prison camps for, it's you, the Karens. Go, go to hell. Go directly to hell. You do not, you, you do not, if there is any such thing as a social contract, the core of it is minding your own goddamn business. Get fucked, Karen. I'm so sick of these motherfuckers. It makes me so angry. These people, they cannot mind their own business. They're tormenting a family. Another similar story. Undercover cops arrest two women for operating home beauty businesses in violation of coronavirus lockdown. Order this published on the 27th. Undercover cops arrested two women in Laredo, Texas for violating the city's COVID-19 shutdown order. The women, Anna Isabel Castro-Garcia and Brenda Stephanie Mata, had been operating prohibited cosmetology businesses from their home. The Laredo lockdown mandates that non-essential businesses, including cosmetology services, must close. Police say the women are reported anonym anonymously through the department's app. Oh my god, the Karens! Ace in the chat, the Karens will be the death of us all. Yeah, there's no joke there, man. The fucking Karens! Reported anonymously through the department's app. Oh my god! 
If you're a person who reports people anonymously through an app for cutting people's hair, you deserve, you absolutely deserve a sulfuric acid enema. Christ. Eat shit and die, Karen. Quote, both of the violators independently solicited customers via social media, the department told the Laredo Morning Times. Uh, quote, on both cases, the undercover officer working on the COVID-19 task force enforcement detail made contact with each solicitor to set up an appointment for a cosmetic beauty service that is prohibited under the emergency ordinance. Police posting as customers then arrested both women in their homes. HFTM, I wish I had their numbers before I cut my hair. <laughs> um, th this is, uh, everybody's cutting their own hair right now. It's, it's, it's ridiculous what people have been driven to. Both women were charged with a Class B misdemeanor, which comes with a maximum potential penalty of 180 days in jail and a $1,000 fine. The two women were released on $500 personal recognizance bonds. Their arrests are yet more evidence of law enforcement's self-defeating trend of arresting people for violating stay-at-home orders and social distancing protocols. Uh, the Atlanta Constitution Journal has published a long list of examples. There's a hyperlink. Arrests, by their very nature, require police and suspects to come into physical contact with each other. The, the people being arrested are then put in jails that have become breeding grounds for the novel coronavirus. The longer local and state lockdown orders remain in place, the more authoritarian the enforcement seems to get. This is... Oh, my God. These people are... I, I'm, I, it's, just, it's the fucking Karens. The Karens. The fucking Karens. Death to Karens. I'm so sick of this. Really. The Karens... And I'm, here's the thing, too. I'm beyond even the ethics of, like... Of, 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 of an individual like this, if you, frankly, if you beat the shit out of a Karen while they're trying to call the cops on a person, that's, that's defensive because these are people who will call the guns of another person in to enforce what they think is safe. They are holding a gun to people's head. It's just the gun happens to be in someone else's hand. These fucking Karens are, Ace said they'll be the death of us all. They're going to be the death of a lot of people. Ethically, I think if you see somebody making an anonymous call to the police, ethically, you're justified in beating the shit out of them. This is insane. Now, legally, you will, of course, be guilty of, of assault, of battery assault and, and maybe other crimes as well. But ethically, I think you're fine. This is insane. This is insane. Uh, Ace says, right, they're not too far off from a client hiring a hitman. Right. Well, they're, they're actually almost exactly a person hiring a kidnapper. They're hiring a cop to go put somebody in a cage. That's like, that's exactly what they're doing. It's, it's, yeah. And HF team says I'm morally okay. And the distinction between morals and ethics. Okay. I got you. Um, the, the, it's, it's a, it's, it's just bonkers to me. It's bonkers. Beat Karens. We need to tar and feather the Karens. Um, it's fucking nuts. Absolutely nuts. And with oil so low, tar has never been cheaper. Um, Let's move on to another story. Actually, you know what? From here, I think it's time. I think it's time for the thing that you know what time it is. Brothers will do fine. It's time for who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? I'll tell you who I trust. I trust Superior, executive producers Xerci. It's all you 77. I trust executive producer Childerberg. I trust producers Max Ogburn, Absurdus Fool, and Woe Dude. All of you have been there throughout this entire fucking mess, and I'm so glad to see you there still. Um, wonderful individuals. Uh, if you would like to join them, you can do so from Alternative Internet Radio or from the Rogue File, roguefile.com or AIRAD.io. Um, there's also, you know, merch and, 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 uh, and 
uh, what's the word? I forgot the word cryptocurrency, crypto available. You can use those if you like um, many different methods. If times are tough and you need to lower your donation or, or drop off entirely, absolutely feel free to do that. I should not be your priority at to to uh, to any extent whatsoever. So it's uh, it's it's been. I know things have been a little hectic. I've been doing the show later in the week. I've been doing them on Wednesday, Thursday, thereabouts. So I know it's it's been a bit nuts, but I'm I'm hopefully after finals and stuff, I'll be able to get back on a regular schedule of doing uh, Sunday or Monday shows, depending on which one is more convenient at the time. That's when I like to do them, Sunday or Monday at the beginning of the week. And um, I'll be back to that before too long. But with the way that, that finals have been and everything like that, uh, like I said, next week, no show. So, uh, considering that I probably won't ask for a payout for, for, uh, for March. I won't, I probably won't pull a payout on March 1st. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I think that's all the kind of news and stuff like that about the show. I want to, I want to thank again, superior executive producer, Jixiercy and Sayu 77, executive producer, Childerberg and producers, Max Ogburn and Absurdist Fool. As far as Childerberg is concerned, that reminds me, um, Childerberg's, on shaky ground, I think. Uh, I, I I really don't want anything to happen, but as the lockdowns reach closer and closer to kind of mid-May, it, it looks less and less likely that Childerberg's going to happen. I'm still hoping for it. It's not over yet, I don't think. I don't think it's been canceled yet, but I'm going to be keeping an eye out for that. Different ways that maybe we could do something else, um, or at least I've been thinking about that. I know, I know, uh, I know... Uh, other people involved with Childerberg have been thinking about that, but th- there was so much lined up for, for, for this. It might just make more sense just to try and push it back later to later in the summer. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not saying anything's going to happen. I just, I'm, I'm worried about it. Um, so there's an update on Childerberg, which is effectively nothing. I know nothing. Um, let's go through them again. Superior executive producer, Xerxes, it's you 77 executive producer, Childerberg and producers, Max Ogburn, absurd fool. And whoa, dude, thank you all so much for being there. You are all uh, gods amongst men, wolves amongst ravens, diamonds in the rough, beautiful, beautiful blights, bright, blah, 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 bright spots of light in this dark and digi place that we all call the internet. All right. Published on the 26th, the reason WHO deletes misleading tweet that spread paranoia about COVID-19 reinfection. This weekend, the World Health Organization had to delete a misleading tweet about the coronavirus. Unfortunately, several media outlets had already cited it, spreading unwarranted fear about the likelihood of secondary COVID-19 infections. On Friday, the WHO published a scientific brief on immunity passports, the idea that governments should grant special documents to citizens who test positive for COVID-19 antibodies, show me your papers, allowing them to move about freely. The WHO warned that this is premature since, quote, no study has evaluated whether the presence of antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 confers immunity to subsequent infection by this virus in humans. The WHO is correct. The scientists have not determined the degree of immunity enjoyed by COVID-19 survivors. But the tweet version of the brief was misleading. Important context. Uh, It said only this, quote, there's currently no evidence that people who have recovered from COVID-19 and have antibodies are protected from a second infection. That's technically true. There's no evidence of immunity, but that's because COVID-19 is new and the matter hasn't been conclusively studied yet. Scientists have good reason to to expect COVID-19 survivors to have some immunity to the virus, though they're unsure how strong it will be or how long it will last. When they say no evidence, they mean something like no definitive proof yet, wrote wrote statistician Nate Silver in response to WHO tweet. But the average person is going to read it as there's no immunity to coronavirus, which is likely false and not a good summation of the evidence. 
Indeed, Bloomberg News reported this story with the headline, WHA warns you may catch coronavirus more than once. Uh, here's how the article started. Quote, catching COVID-19 once may not protect you from getting it again, according to the World Health Organization, a finding that could jeopardize efforts to allow people to return to work after recovering from the virus. That's just wrong. There's no finding to speak of here as an absence of definitive proof that antibodies confer a degree of immunity. Many readers undoubtedly would come away from these statements at a level of anxiety. You can get it again. We're doomed. That isn't merited. The WHO ultimately conceded that its declarations about immunity passports were overly pessimistic and deleted the tweet in question. From parroting the Chinese communist governor's lies about COVID-19 to wrongly warning people against wearing masks, the WHO has badly mishandled communications about the pandemic. The organization really needs to get its act together. That's what they say here. I, I, I think there might be... Uh, this is, perhaps not legally, but definitely colloquially, this is a negligent handling of the situation. The WHO has been... Has been um, uh, <laughs> So, just disappointing. Well, I say disappointing. I had low expectations in the first place, so I'm not technically disappointed. Um, it's just bad. They're bad. They're bad. They're bad people. They're, they cover for China. They lie to people uh, on, on the regular. It's a shitty organization. It's a political organization. It should be defunded. Fuck them. Eight of the top ten biggest U.S. coronavirus hotspots are prisons and jails. So... This kind of ties back to the story earlier about, about the ridiculousness of arresting people and throwing them in a vat with other people. Um, it doesn't make any fucking sense if you're supposed to be social distancing. Published on the 29th. Eight of the top ten hotspots for the COVID-19 cases in the U.S. are connected to jails and prisons, according to the data from the New York Times. The largest COVID-19 cluster in the country is at Marion Connecticut uh, Correctional Institution in Marion, Ohio, where there are 2,197 infected inmates, more than 80% of the prison's population. Quote, as recently as yesterday, we have inmates in here that can't even walk and breathe because of the virus, Austin Cooper, an inmate at the prison, told local news outlet ABC News 5. Quote, medical just keeps sending them back out here to, to the camp, talking about how they can't do anything for them. Other clusters include Lankland Correctional Facility in Michigan, where more than 600 inmates have tested positive, the Cook County Jail in Illinois, which is nearing 1,000 positive cases, and Pickaway Correctional Institution in Ohio, the second largest COVID-19 cluster in the country, with 1,629 cases. There's, is that two of these in Ohio? Yeah, that's two of these in Ohio, I think. Yeah, one in Marion, one in uh, Scotia Township. I am, uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised there's two of these in Ohio because we know that there are direct flights from Shenzhen to Ohio because that's where the Chinese have their factories that they own in the United States. Uh, the numbers and dire news stories underscore what civil liberties groups and correctional uni officers unions have been saying, have been trying to warn local, state, and federal agencies about since COVID-19 reached the country, that jails and prisons were woefully underprepared to handle a an epidemic, and that these institutions would inevitably spread the virus to nearby communities unless drastic measures were taken. WBUR reported Tuesday that COVID-19 has infected nearly 1,500 inmates, um, sorry, 15,000 inmates, and correction staff across the country and killed more than 130 more worryingly, the infection numbers above are likely undercounts because of the lack of widespread testing in federal, state, and local lockups. Last week, the, the ACLU released a new epidemiological model indicating, uh, I'm sorry, estimating that unless jail populations are dra drastically reduced, COVID-19 could kill 100,000 more people than current projections, even with social distancing protocols. Quote, we're likely to face massive loss of life, both in jails and in the communities around the country. If dramatic steps aren't taken to reduce the incarcerated population in this country. Hello, Trumpy Bear. Trumpy Bear is joined. Odie Olford, director of the ACLU's Justice Division, said in a press release, quote, mass incarceration was a major public health crisis before the outbreak of COVID-19, but this pandemic has pushed it past the breaking point. The revolving doors of jails made them a tinderbox for COVID-19 spread within our communities. 
This data is a wake-up call uh, as to the true cost of 50 years of mass incarceration and its impact on communities across the nation, disproportionately communities of color. Many district attorney's offices, jails, and prisons took unprecedented steps to halt the flow of more people into the criminal justice system and to get some at-risk inmates out of harm's way, but it still hasn't been enough to stop the virus from tearing through many facilities. In the Federal Bureau of, uh, in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, BOP, uh, 1,314 inmates and 355 staff have tested positive for the virus. Federal Medical Center Fort Worth, a federal prison in Texas, uh, announced on Monday that 234 inmates have tested positive following expanded testing. We live shoulder to shoulder, Cody Franks, an FMC Fort Worth inmate, told NBC DFW. Literally, the only time I'm not standing or sitting next to someone is in the shower. As, we, as Reason reported, the BOP announced the first female federal inmate died Tuesday. She was three, uh, 30 years old and delivered a child via an emergency cesarean section while ventilated. Jesus, that's, that's horrifying. Um, I'm going to move this down. I'll cover the story later. I'm going to go through the beginnings of a, few of, these, of a few stories here in a row. This from the Daily Mail. You remember we were talking about, um, on the last episode, we were talking about antibodies testing. And uh, my presumption that, uh, and I was also talking about this with uh, Dose in, in, on, on his show, in, in his Discord. I'm not sure when that'll come out, but it will eventually. Um, th- the, I, I, my, my presumption is that the, the antibodies testing, my assumption, my guess, is that the antibodies testing is going to reveal that far more people have been infected with this thing than we initially assumed. And as a result, this thing is far less deadly than we have been led to believe. Um, it's, I would not be surprised if it's more deadly than the flu, but not by much. Um, I, I, I would think it's going to be somewhere around the 0.7%, maybe as high as 1%, maybe 1% feels high to me, given some of the estimates for, um, from these antibody tests about how many people have been infected versus how many people have been tested and confirmed. Uh, so let's go to the daily mail published on the 18th. A third of participants in Massachusetts study test positive for antibodies linked to COVID-19 after giving their blood samples to, uh, on, in the street at random. Nearly one-third of 200 Massachusetts residents were infected with antibodies linked to the novel coronavirus, according to a pilot study. Physicians at the Massachusetts General Hospital said they found evidence of widespread COVID-19 exposure in the city of Chelsea. Chelsea, lo- located just north of Boston, had the state's rate of coronavirus infections at 1,900 cases per 100,000 residents. Researchers collected drops of blood from residents in Bellingham Square on Tuesday and Wednesday after advertising the study. Of the 200 voluntary participants, 64 had antibodies created by their immune systems to fight the coronavirus. Although researchers noted the participants appeared healthy, around half told doctors they experienced at least one COVID-19 symptom in the past four weeks. Additionally, researchers determined that 32% of participants had already had COVID-19 and several had no idea. Residents who previously tested positive for COVID-19 were excluded from the study and identities remained anonymous. Unfortunately, this means none of the 200 participants received individual test results. Physicians used a diagnostic device to analyze blood droplets and said results were available in around 10 minutes. Um, So that's the beginning of that story. I'm only going to read the beginnings of these because I want to make a point. Uh, This is from the Inquirer. PA removes more than 200 deaths from the official coronavirus count as questions mount about reporting processes and data accuracy. I'm going to move that story down, actually, because this one is better from the blaze. Antibody study finds 21% of New York City residents had COVID-19. Nearly 2 million New York City uh, NYCers, they say, it's just New Yorkers, have gotten uh, the virus. New York City may have had nearly 2 million cases of COVID-19, according to an antibody study that revealed that 21% of tested NYC residents had had the virus, according to the New York Times. 
The information comes from testing done at on a uh, hundred and um, I'm sorry, done on thirteen hundred supermarket shoppers in West. Uh, I'm sorry, in New York City this week, and the results were announced Thursday by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Quote, what does it mean? I don't know, Cuomo said during his daily press briefing. Then you're an idiot. Uh, quote, there are people out here, uh, out and about shopping. They were not people who were in their homes. They were not people who were isolated. They were not people who were quarantined. Uh, the study had a sample size of 1,300 people in New York City. Of those, 21% tested positive for COVID-19 antibodies. If that percentage held true through the entire population, that would amount to approximately 1.7 million cases, far more than the current count. The statewide study tested 3,000 people total in the state, and the percentage of people in that sample that tested positive was 14%, which would amount to 2.6 million cases if applied to the entire population. The current number of total cases in New York is about uh, 250,000. If those numbers are accurate, the infection mortality rate in New York would be about 0.5%, Cuomo said. Some experts have, have reservations about the accuracy of antibody tests right now. Uh, there's a quote from someone there. One in five New Yorkers may have had COVID-19. That's a related, I'm sorry, that's not part of the article. I blocked JavaScript, so it fucks with the way the actual pages look. It's difficult. Um, and another one. Miami data antibody tests suggest local COVID-19 infections exceed confirmed cases by a factor of 16. Antibody tests in Miami-Dade County, Florida, suggest that something like 6% of local residents have been infected by the virus that causes COVID-19. That finding implies that 165,000 infections or more than 16 times the official tally of confirmed cases when the results were announced on Friday. Based on the current Miami-Dade death toll, those results suggest a fatality rate of about 0.2% among people infected with the virus, similar to results from Santa Clara County and Los Angeles County in California, but about one-third the rate implied by antibody tests in New York. Miami-Dade Mayor Carlos uh, Jimenez said more than half of the people who tested positive for antibodies reported no symptoms consistent with COVID-19 during the previous 7 to 14 days. That finding is similar to the results of virus testing in Iceland, where about half of the volunteers from a general population who tested positive for the virus reported no symptoms. So that was, uh, I'm going to skip down to a little bit of the methodology. The Miami-Dade study, which was conducted by research at the University of Miami, was based on random sample of about 1,400 people con uh, contacted through automated phone calls. Jimenez emphasized that the sample was designed to be representative of the county's population. <sighs> Those three stories all reinforce the point that I've been making. This thing is not nearly as deadly as we've been led to believe. It is probably deadly. It is probably more deadly than a flu. It is nowhere near a 3% mortality rate. Nowhere close to it. Like I said, I would be surprised if this thing was higher than a 0.7% mortality rate on average. Because these antibody tests are revealing... What, what this is saying is very, very telling. It's saying that the number of tests that have been done and the number of cases that have been generated based on those tests is far outweighed by the number of people who have actually had the virus, whether they were tested or not, whether they're a case or not. A factor of 16 is high. Some places have said 20. Some places it's basically just add two zeros to the official case number, and that's how many people have been infected. So it tracks. This thing is not nearly as deadly as we've been led to believe. This was blown up. The WHO lied about it. The FDA has lied about it. The government has lied about it. The, uh, the CDC has lied about it talking about how this thing was going to have a 3% death rate. None of that is true. I'm confident in saying that now. Based on these pilot tests and the, the, the two that we talked about on uh, either the last show or the show before, I'm confident in saying that this thing is nowhere near as deadly as we've been told it's going to be. So I'll make the point again. When all of this washes out, 
I want to see the number of people who were killed or injured or otherwise needed medical attention, mental health attention from the shutdown of the economy versus the number of people who have needed medical attention or have died from this thing. I want to see that number. Was it worth the cost? I made the point on previous shows. The bean counters do not count lives. The bean counters want to do the thing to the graph. In fact, let's talk about that a little bit. I'm skipping that other story. Let's go to this. This from Real Clear Politics. How COVID-19 has transformed what we hear and see on TV. Uh, I'm going to skip the, uh, the, the initial thing. I'm going to say, across media generally, mentions of, quote, experts are soaring as outlets increasingly interview medical and academic professionals. Phrases like, quote, social distancing are part of every discussion, and outlets talk increasingly of a, quote, new normal. An early focus on, quote, the elderly has given way to discussion of, quote, immunity, while coverage of, quote, death and, quote, rationing of care are, de- are declining as counties, I'm sorry, as countries ramp up their responses. Media coverage has also shifted quote, from, quote, flattening the curve, a.k.a. doing the thing to the graph, to, quote, reopening the economy, as seen in the timeline below. Uh, there's actual graphs of mentions of these words. Uh, March 12th saw both terms begin increasing in usage, but, but since April 5th, mentions of reopening have surged while mentions of flattening the curve have steadily fallen since April, I'm sorry, doing the thing to the graph, uh, have steadily fallen since April 12th. Even the pronouns used by the media have shifted from I and me to us and we. This should concern you. The timeline below shows the percentage of all words spoken on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News since July 2009 and the BBC News since January 2017. That were us or we. Fox appears to have long preferred such terms more than its peers, but sharply increasing its usage after the election of Donald Trump. All four channels have dramatically increased their usage in 2020. The timeline below zooms into the January 2022 present period, showing that us and we began increasing around February 25th and have surged since about March 11th, uh, stabilizing at elevated levels since March 17th. Uh, Mentions of I and me show no such change, indicating that the COVID-19 era is more about us than me. This should concern you. What about the visuals first world of television news? Google's video AI was used to watch CNN uh, since January 25th this year and describe the objects and activities it observed second by second. The source of all the broadcasts was the Internet Archive's television news archive, and they were analyzed by the GDELT project, a special non-consumptive digital library system. The volume of on-screen text has increased 55% to more than 18 million characters per day since March 18th. Since March 9th, the growing percentage of CNN's airtime each day comes from uh, comes via Cisco's WebEx video conferencing software, totaling as much as three hours a day. Alongside its increasingly remote reporters and guests are fewer speaker changes in which one speaker yields uh, to another to respond from about 16, I'm sorry, 6,000 to 5,000 per day with longer monologues replacing the traditional back and forth of host and guest. As CNN increasingly relies on homebound guests and personalities, bookcases have become a familiar sight, <laughs> especially as a backdrop while buzz-cut hairstyles have steadily increased. Imagery of crowds have largely faded away since March, as the rallies and protests of the 2020 presidential race all but disappeared in early March, only to stage a comeback of sorts since April 18th as reopening protests begin to take place around the country. Finally, who is telling the COVID-19 story on CNN? Cryon mentions typically uh, use... I'm sorry, Chiron. I can't believe I misread that. Trumpy Bear in the chat says, deaths attributed to the shutdown be counted as COVID-related. The data will be useless. Oh, God, you're right. Fuck. Hopefully, we can find a good statistical breakout so we can get those numbers and, and strip strip those numbers apart. Um, 
I would be willing to do that work. Uh, finally, who is telling the COVID-19 story on scene? And Chiron mentions, typically used to display the name and affiliation, I guess the lower thirds is another thing that they're called, um, the, of professor have increased nearly threefold since early March, while doctor and nurse have increased since February 26th, from a minute or two per day to between an hour and a third of the day, uh, every day, uh, showing just how much the channel's relying on medical community to inform its viewers and recount their experiences on the front lines below. This is all, all, I say this in order to sort of lift the veil a little bit on some of the training that you're receiving and that everyone is receiving from uh, mainstream news outlets. Uh, if, you're, if you're listening to Politics, 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 one of the things Justin Romer, done, uh, Justin Romer Young does at the beginning of a show is that I, I would recommend listening to Politics, Politics, Politics just for this. Um, he mentions, he has a, a, what he calls a hyperbole-free coronavirus update at the beginning of the show. And it is, it is hyperbole free as he describes it. It is an update on coronavirus stuff. And it goes through some of the states that are responding in recent days, uh, in the lead up to the show. It goes through, uh, some of the numbers and things of this nature. Fascinating, fascinating, uh, way to approach it. And the, the, the media, the corporate press, I should say, are not approaching it the same way. The corporate press is talking all about, about the fear. They want the fear. They love the fear. They require the fear. They are they are part of the organizations, one the group of organizations that I was talking about that's handled this so negligently, blowing up the threat of this thing for for clicks and views and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and this story kind of lifts the veil on 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 the way that they program the population. The population only parrots social distancing as a result of the media parroting social distancing. They only parrot. Uh, doing the thing to the graph as a reference, at, or after the media begins to pair it doing the thing to the graph. Um, the, the, the increased collectivization, I and me to us and we, this is something that you've seen on Twitter. You've seen a lot of these people uh, wanting to kumbaya and hold hands and talk about how we can get through this together. Um, there's there's the, the sort of collectivist aspect of this has been hammered into the population. And remember, if you're listening to this show, you're probably a person who seeks out information most people are dumb eaters. Most people are not seeking information. It is fed to them. They turn on CNN and whatever's on there is the information they get. And that's, that is true for most of the population. Most of the population does not seek information. It comes to them. They'll, they don't, they don't, you know, listen to a, a shitload of news shows. They have a couple of news outlets that they watch. They don't, read, uh, you know, news stories from different sources and try to find interesting aspects of it and things. No, they have one news source set as their homepage and that's it. Um, they don't care to track down certain things. And again, like listening to the show or listening to other news sources outside of those that you usually do or, or setting up a news diet that takes up most of your life. Um, like I do, uh, most of my, most of my, my sort of passive listening, especially, but, uh, uh, not much on television, but most of my passive listening when I listen to podcasts and things like that, it's news. It's all news-related stuff. Uh, I, if you're a person who seeks out news, you have to understand you are not common. You're not common. Most people are just spoon-fed news. Again, they turn on Fox and leave it on all day, and that's the news they get. So you're not going to have as much of a meta-understanding if you're a person who just eats. I, I, it's, and, and I say eats because it's kind of like... It's kind of the difference between cooking and eating. It's, it's, if, you're, if you're seeking out news, taking it in, ingesting it, and then using it as context for further news, 
that's cooking and eating. If you're going through the drive-thru and just eating, that's how most people get their news. So you, you have to, again, I just want to try and give this context to, to, cause it's difficult sometimes. It's difficult if you're a person who cares about news and seeks it out, follows things, tracks things down. If you're one of these people, you're, you're not, you're going to have a hard time understanding why, um, others aren't. <laughs> and the simple fact is they're not, they get their news from a source. They turn on CNN for two hours a day or whatever it is, and that's how they get their news. Or they have the one homepage, or they have, they, they don't care about further Googling on a topic, whatever it is. They don't cook and eat their news, they just drive through the drive-thru and eat it. And eat whatever they're given. It's like going through a drive-thru where you don't actually get to order. <laughs> um, and that's why this stuff matters. The collectivist language that's being used, sort of stripping away the idea of an individual that's leading to all these people who are saying, all these people who whenever they see these protests trying to reopen a state or something like that, these people who say, I hope they get coronavirus and take it home to their kids and kill them. It's because of this collectivism that they're being trained to believe via these media sources. This is linguistic training. It changes the way you think. And if you don't believe me, Listen to a podcast that you do not agree with for two weeks. If you don't believe me, listen to Pod Save America for two weeks. Or listen to, I don't know, a conservative equivalent of Pod Save America for two weeks. You will find your thinking will change if you're actually receptive to it. You will find your thinking will change. I've noticed this anytime I've picked up a podcast that sort of uh, introduced a new way of thinking or a different way of thinking, I found myself thinking in that way if I really imbibe of that show. No Agenda is a great example. If you're not a No Agenda listener and you start listening to No Agenda, you develop what, what they call the No Agenda mentality. It, it changes the way that you see the world. The media that you take in changes your, your brain. It does. And so... All of this talk of experts, again, the bean counters who don't care about people's lives, all of this talk of social distancing, of doing the thing to the graph, people are parrots, and this is training. That's true for the majority of the conversation, or of the conversation, for the majority of the population. And if you're listening to this, again, you might not have sort of a, 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 an ability to contextualize that in your brain. If you're listening to this, you're probably a person who seeks out things. Most people don't seek things out. Most people, again, they, they don't even order at the drive-thru. They just eat what they're given. I wanted to read through that just because, again, it, it really lifts the veil on the programming that people are receiving from the corporate press. And I think that's why it's important to listen to things like this show and things like uh, politics, 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 things like No Agenda, these, these, these outside sources of information that do not have any corporate interests. They're not being trained by corporations or, or threatened by corporations. Um, they're not going to be, you know, the, the, if, 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 uh, if politics, 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 Justin Robert Young's outfit talks about the, the Tara Reid, um, uh, 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 accusations of Joe Biden, the Biden campaign's not going to call up Justin Robert Young and say, stop talking about that the way they did with the New York fucking times and the New York times, uh, uh, said, okay, the New York times agreed to it. The Biden campaign calls up the times and says, stop talking about this. And the Times says, okay. That's not going to happen with these independent sources of information. So um, that's why I want to thank you guys for listening to this. And, and in the coming week, when I don't make a show, uh, uh, listen to try to listen to something new. Maybe listen to No Agenda if you don't listen to No Agenda. Maybe listen to Politics, Politics, Politics if you don't listen to that. Um, 
uh, I'm not I'm not going to be putting out a show next week, like I said. So so, you know, fill that time with with another independent source of information, um, because there are a lot of us out here and uh, everybody kind of has a different thing that they're offering. Um, and with that, I think I think that's it for the show. I think that's it for this week's show. I'll, I'll see you guys. I was going to say next week and, and I will say next week during the outro, but I, I I'll see you guys in two weeks, uh, maybe shorter than that with the time it's going to be. Actually, I think the next show will be on the 10th. I think the next show will be on the 10th of May. So thank you so much for listening, you guys. Uh, 10th or 11th. That's the beginning of that week. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I will see you then. Uh, Ace says the great... Thank you so much, Ace. Oh, thanks to the people in the chat. I always kind of overlook it, but the people in the chat are indispensable. Um, they, they, they add things to the show that I wouldn't otherwise say. They check me on things. Um, I wouldn't know how to pronounce the word Uyghur if it weren't for the chat. So I want to thank the chat for being there as well. And I'll see you guys uh, in, in the next couple of weeks as well. Thanks so much. I want to thank everybody who hung out in the chat and kept me on my toes during this recording. You can do that every week. A-I-R-A-D dot I-O slash live. I want to thank everybody who listens to the show, everybody who downloads the show, everybody who rates us and gives us a review on whatever platform you listen on. I want to thank the producers, all you glorious and magnanimous people who support this show. You can do that on AIRAD.io or on the Rogue File, roguefile.com slash donate. Uh, you can find the things that I write on the Rogue File, roguefile.com. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Dean O Files. You can find the network on Twitter at AltNet Radio. Go ahead and give us a follow there. I love every single one of you glorious freaks, and I will be back with you next week. Y'all have a great week. This has been an alternative internet radio production. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io. That's AIRAD.io.